0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rasmawe, and I'm joined by the usual cast and crew: Matthew Lee Anderson and Alistair Roberts. Uh, and today we are happy to continue with our discussion through the Confessions. We've been having just a really good time working through Augustine's Confessions. We hope you have been uh, enjoying it as well. But today we come to Book Nine. And to lead us in, to lead us in, who will lead us in today? In my arbitrary <laughs> decision. In my arbitrary decision making on this.
1: Well, let me let me say. Uh, I'll I'll go. The okay, so go for it. we're we're at the end of the narrative arc, or the narrative dimensions of the confession. So after spoiler alert, book ten. Um, pivots pretty hard towards uh, abstract more abstract reflections on memory and time and creation and all sorts of really fun doctrinal stuff so if you've really disliked if you've been reading along and you really disliked the narrative dimensions you're probably a bad person and don't worry you're um, you're being saved from them. I think one of the things about book nine that I'd love to hear both of your respective uh, responses to, and it f- kind of fits just with a more general question about Augustine in the confessions at this point of his, uh, in his development as a theologian is the uh, decision to renounce his position as redder as orator um teacher of rhetoric rhetorics um and whether or not his conversion is too prompts too sharp of a differentiation for him between um the world of eternity and this world that he happens to be. Still a member of, so you, you have him going out to Cassiaicum and entering into a quasi monastic sort of life, um, and, and and that being that impulse being really central to how he thinks about his Christian life in this chapter, um, the, the, the the sort of renunciation of the dimensions of worldliness that he had been wrapped up in. Are seems to be a really major theme, um, even down to uh, his relationship to Monica, which we can also talk about. But I so the question is something like: Does does Augustine's conversion prompt too sharp of a renunciation of this world, and do we see evidence of that in Book Nine of Confessions?
0: Yeah, that is. That is a question. I mean, I, 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 sorry. Thank qu- you. True, I, all right. Indeed. So I got, I, not even it a
1: good question, mind you, Derek. <laughs> it's just a question.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want things to go to, to your head too quickly. Um, I mean, that, that, that's, that's part of the, partly the same question I had with respect to uh, his approach to marriage and sexuality and, and whether the conversion as, as, you know, uh, full celibacy uh, was was really necessary, so to speak. And in the same way here, you know, conversion as devotion to um, the monastic life is just too much in that regard. And I think there, there's the the my my instinct is to say yes, it probably yes, it is. But but then again, my I, I, I wonder how much my instincts are formed by um, my context, where the idea of you know the monastery or the idea of abandoning the you know that that one calling is is anathema. It's it's too, too radical in that regard, and we're so enmeshed in the world, um, and so uh, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. I, 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 Personal, I think a lot of the question is is the matter of personal vocation, and personal conscience. God may call, God may give a vocation, uh, and 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 conversion may entail radical changes like that for individuals according to God's call. Uh, when it doesn't necessarily for all, so so Augustine may have needed to do that himself personally according to his conscience according to what the spirit's doing there and you know in in many ways thank god it, he did because it led to the the career that we and the legacy that he has but um but i i think the question here is whether he universalizes that and and, and i think it's more revealed in, in the question of how he um uh looks at this the, the decisions of others in their Renunciation or lack thereof, I think is is where I wonder, um, because it's interesting because Augustine and Augustinianism in general is taken not to be, as, uh, except for in the matter of sexuality, as world renouncing. It's, it's supposed to be kind of a, a, a political and vocational doctrine that takes you out into the world, um, at least in, in some of the reform strains. And so it's it's interesting to see the way it cashed out in his own life. Um, So that was my very vague. I'm not sure Uh, a lot of it matters. A lot of it depends on, on whether you universalize his particular call outwards. Alistair.
2: Well, he does talk about the way in which his motivation for um, his task as a retor was, he was very much driven by um, money and the um, desire to make money. And when that, motivation was taken from him, things were a lot harder. He had to do things by virtue of patience instead. And so I think that's an important thing to bear in mind, that the activity is not just the thing in itself, but it's the whole motivation that drove him in in pursuing that. Beyond that, there's also the fact that at key moments within our lives, we may have to renounce things, simply because they've taken up too much of our horizon. And it's that preoccupation with things that may be good in themselves but which saturate our horizon the immediate horizon in a way that prevents us from focusing upon something beyond that there are key moments when i think we we do need to make a break i mean i'm sure we have had this within our own lives there was a time when i sold all my music collection and it was the right thing to do um but I have a large music collection now but it's not it my relationship to it had to change and part of that involved selling it and so and throwing out some of it but that is that is the sort of renunciation that we are often called to and then we can rebuild things again and reestablish old practices but they're around a completely different orientation and there's a certain point where you have to clear as it w- were the room of your life, put this one new thing straight in the center, and then see what fits around it. But in order Sorry, to put it I... in there, you may need to move everything else.
1: Yeah, Alistair, I just, I'm, I, I, this is so far off topic, but hearing that story, listeners, by which I mean me. Really are going to want to know what sort of music high I school know, I, that, was that, just, that just burned on the pile of the youth group. If you know, pyre, uh, bonfire. Uh, wh- of, I, of I know. I mean, which, 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 what's what sort of music was this?
2: <laughs> what was, Sorry, um, it was just mostly standard um rock.
1: Oh. It breaks my heart okay. a little. It breaks my heart. I, the, the,
0: did you get out? Alist- did you throw out the Metallica? Is that what, is that what this was about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Alist- I'm sorry. Okay. we're all okay. trying to imagine Alistair Roberts Metallica listener.
0: Rocking uh, out. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Hey, But, but on this, on, on, the, on the real subject, though, we'll get, we'll get the listeners. We will try and prize some of these details from him later and report back. Um I do think it's, I want to look at, there's a feature here, which is interesting in his renunciation though, that plays into our, those individual judgments that we make with regard to vocation. Um, You know, I I changed from, I changed, when I got the call to ministry, I changed from my major from poli-sci to philosophy as a preparation for seminary. Also, but that also coincided with um, my current boredom with my poli-sci classes and my interest, my my rising interest in philosophy, which was concurrent with a a spiritual awakening that was going on. Uh, But it's interesting here that uh, Augustine, concurrent with his spiritual awakening and his, and um, realizing that his motivation for pursuing uh, his professorate um, coincided with a sickness. You know, he, he says he has weak, he had weak lungs at that point where because he had, he had not taken care of himself or the bad air or whatever it was. He he said his lungs started giving out and he, and he, he, he was, uh, losing his breath. He was, he was losing his voice. And so, you know, you wonder how much the meditation, how much the meditation on the fact that I physically can't do this right now. I can't do this anymore. Now he, he paints it in this moment as like, uh, A moment for um, thankfully Lord the Lord provided him with that excuse so that he could give so he was able to kind of give some of these teachers who would be mad at him for not continuing to teach their their students their children but it is interesting I wonder how much some of these providential um, moments play into our which could be interpreted in many ways play into our discerning of particular vocations like that Uh, how much you know, it felt like, okay, God is, God is, God is actually taking this away or or leading you away in your body from this profession. Um, and just the way that, that, that helps shape our, our discernment of, of call. So I think framing, um, so that, that struck me.
1: Yeah. Framing this as a matter of vocation and a season of life and so on is I think a right and appropriate way to do it. Um, Alistair had used language of sort of imminent goods, I think, and this one sort of greater good that they all hang on and making room for that, which I think is helpful. I'm, I'm interested to hear your guys's response to the death of Monica in this light where his, the making room for this new good seems to prompt, um, If I if I want to put on my modern hat, a deep repression of grief that would be psychologically disturbing and um, extraordinarily unhelpful Uh, because he has to justify um, the fact that he wept for his mother for a fraction of an hour the mother who had died before my eyes, who had wept for me, that I might live before your eyes. Right? Like this, 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 this context that he's in of renunciation of worldly goods extends all the way to the renunciation of grief at the loss of one's own mother. um, Who had in fact been an instrumental part of opening Agassin's life to the, uh, the eternal good. Yeah. So I, you know, in, in, it, like, I wonder how much of this can fully be explained on the, the kind of vocational grounds that y'all are taking, um, or, or the, it's a season of life grounds and how much of it is really endemic to the kind of, um, Approach that Augustine has to the value of these imminent creational goods that he thinks have held him back from uh, the greater good of God.
2: Well, I, yes, I think I think he does he does um, go too far in um, that questioning of the appropriateness of of. Uh,
0: Mourning his mother.
2: Just mourning his (laughs) mum. I mean, that that close relationship is one that mourning and weeping is appropriate within that context. However, I mean there's a number of things that interest me here. I think one of them is that within scripture we have this we have very strong challenges about the degree to which we can become preoccupied with our close relations in a way that absorbs our attention and prevents us from giving it to the Lord fully. So in 1 Corinthians 7, and then in things like um, leaving father and mother to follow Christ, um, hating father and mother. I mean, this is very strong language and perhaps we need to learn something from Augustine here, even though he's going too far, We maybe need to be challenged that we do not go far enough in questioning these things that are genuine goods, but we allow ourselves to become preoccupied with them to an inappropriate way, an inappropriate degree. The other thing that strikes me is, and this is more generally within this book, there's such an emphasis upon death. There's one death after another within um, this book, and in a world where you're so often encountering death you view life and you view death differently in part because you view you view people's lives in terms of a totality and so the rejoicing or the sense of joy when someone goes to um steps into eternity having been right with god and man um there's something appropriate to that, that we find difficult because we're so absorbed with the um, immediate and the imminent um, presence of that person, that we don't give enough thought to the full scope of their life. And occasionally we will, but um, when he's talking about his mother, his mother speaks of having been weaned off life, as it were, that she's ready to die. The reasons that she was still alive, those after his conversion, she's found her joy, she's found the answer to her prayers, and she's ready to leave the world. And I think that's, that's something to bear in mind too, but these attachments are not ones that are denied. I mean, it's very clear that he has a deep attachment to his mother, but there's a certain appropriateness in letting go of these things. And having a, a grasp of life that's shaped by an awareness of death and transience and these sorts of things that maybe we just don't have that much of a sense of anymore where so much of death happens behind closed doors or is something that we keep very much at arm's length or further
0: so it's interesting you bring that up so right now I'm going through first and second Samuel and um, the flip side is that you see David uh, after the death of Jonathan and Saul, raising up these grand laments, um, and again after the death of uh, Abner and uh, so forth, and, and so much of the lament and the tears and the ashes and sackcloth and and the the mourning, the very open, uh, visceral and real mourning that we see throughout Scripture is the flip side of a lot of this, and and uh, you, you might think it, it, it's weird. Our culture would look at, at, at this simultaneously as, man, that's that's pretty cold, 15 minutes, you know, uh, uh, for your mom. And, and the flip side is we also are a culture that's very bad at mourning um, simultaneously uh, with that. And so we might, on the one hand, think it's too harsh. On the other hand, we're not really as, we don't give ourselves as fully as scripture seems to, or you know, cultures of scripture seem to uh, give themselves to... Um, morning. The one thing I will add, though, is that <sighs> he he does he is defending himself a bit here, and 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 so for a while he's he's talking about the morning why shouldn't do that, but he also does raise an he does raise a defense of the appropriateness to a degree Uh, again and and if you set in the context that he's he's working in the the reproach of like maybe the stoics or the neoplatonists or whoever there is almost there is a there's this there is a defense of mourning to a degree there um against against critics from that time in that place so set in the context where he's from to some degree it seems like augustine is giving more space to it um than many many would think appropriate. So we might see him charting a very harsh path and, and and yet it might be in in, in the time giving space that many would not. Um, one other, one other element though, when it comes to what you were, what you were talking about, I want to pick up is the vision. Um, wait, Derek, before you go there,
1: before you go there, I, I just wanted to, to, to affirm, uh, Alistair's point about the presence of death, um, And to to connect the dots between that and the decision to withdraw into a kind of monastic life. I mean, one of the great debates in Augustine scholarship is the the nature of the secular, this, this time in between and what sort of moral and theological value it has. And Augustine's other one of his other great works, City of God, very much enmeshed in that particular question And what has always struck me about the city of God, and I've not realized this until uh, um, I've not realized the connection until Alistair pointed out in Confessions, is for for Augustine in the city of God, the secular is um, so intertwined with mortality. It's impossible, I think, to understand what Augustine, how he thinks about the nature of the secular without understanding the fact that it's a time that has an end. And, um, it's a time that's structured by death and in that way, the presence of death throughout this, this autobiographical dimension, um, prepares or proceeds in, uh, that, that aspect of his thought, um, in a way that I think is, is really important and really interesting. So thanks Alistair. That, that helps me a ton. Derek, you were going to, you were going to talk about Monica.
0: Well, yeah, I was i was it's a connected point to some degree, because um the things of this world are are our readiness to abandon them. Uh, her death comes after this vision that Augustine shares with her. he talks about this or, I don't know if it's a vision or or they just meditated themselves into a, a state of of um, deep reflection on the goods of this world and then in relation to the goods uh, that will come in the future uh, in heaven and our enjoyment of our enjoyment of God. And so um, part of it is, that, you know, that they have this taste, they, they experience this taste of, uh, of, of what is to come by meditating on the things of this life and then reflecting on how the, the good things in this life like the, the good enjoyments, the, the taste, the sounds, the smells, and all these things, um, the, the pleasures of the bodily senses and uh, delightful radiant light of this physical world uh, is seen by comparison with the life of eternity to be not even worth considering. Our minds were lifted up by an ardent affection towards eternal being itself. Step by step, we climbed beyond all corporeal objects and heaven itself where sun, moon, and stars shed light on the earth. We ascended further. Even further, by eternal reflection and dialogue and wonder at your works, and we entered into our own minds. We moved up beyond them so as to attain the region of inexhaustible abundance where you feed Israel eternally with truth for food. Their life is the wisdom by which all creatures come into being, both things which were, which were and will, which will be. Uh, both, But wisdom itself is not brought into any... He keeps on going on here about the, the pleasures of the eternal and so but it's rooted in to some degree uh by understanding and enjoying the pleasures of this world in a way that allows them to sort of leapfrog up into the eternal and think as good as all this may be that is far surpassing that is far surpassing and so there's in this really, really rich, deep sense that, 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 uh, the eternal is good and glorious and, and pleasurable and delightful and joyful. And in a sense, Monica can pass in peace. Yes, because of, you know, having secured Augustine's conversion, uh, but then also just, uh, knowing what, knowing what, uh, knowing what is coming and then his own comfort comes in part from, from having that experience and knowing what is coming. It's like, he's reflecting on like, she, she has far better coming right now. Like, you know, we've tasted it together. We've, and that, that, that experiential dimension, I think is also important for. So Derek, for the flip so that,
1: side, the the flip side of all of this is, um, if I can make a point that I suspect Alistair will appreciate, uh, and maybe would make on his own for him. Um, the flip side of all of this is that what you have in this vision is a capitulation of the Christian life to Neoplatonic uh, categories, <laughs> um, oh, man. because it is it, like this is it's very explicitly Platinean, uh, Plotinus, uh, because probably given Augustine's Greek and access, he didn't read Plato directly. Um, but if you've read Plato's Symposium, Diotima's Ladder, um, is, is just this kind of ascent up into, up to the form of the beautiful, which requires at every stage, not, not just, not just the affirmation of the stage that you're on, but a sharper re- renunciation of it, um, for what it cannot supply, um, and so the 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 question of eternality and um and what that means is potentially potentially um corrosive to the kinds of um models of of spirituality and of the christian life that we would get within scripture that's that that would be that would be one possibility I, I, one 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 question about this vision is and and the kind of ascent that he describes is the extent to which the steps on that ascent structure our reading of the biographical dimensions of his of confessions is there a kind of comparative ascent that he has taken us through uh, as readers such that with monica and him He's anticipating slash hoping for, by the end of our reading of this book, a similar kind of um, encounter with the eternal uh, that he was given through our total concentration on the kinds of things that he's saying.
2: Something I found very striking um, here is, I suppose, the erotic component of his whole uh, vision, the emphasis upon the life of eternity not being worthy to be compared with um or it's so far beyond the pleasure of bodily senses and the delightfulness of the light of the physical world but he frames it in a way by delight and by pleasure as something that exceeds those and goes further um so talks about that very much in terms of um let's see our minds were lifted up by an ardent affection towards eternal being itself. Then later on, And while we talked and panted after it, we touched it in some small degree by a moment of total concentration of the heart, and we sighed and left behind us the first fruits of the Spirit bound to that higher world as we returned to the noise of our human speech where a sentence has both a beginning and an ending. And that sense of longing and desire and affection and eros I found that very striking, um, as a component of um, that sort of Neoplatonic spirituality, maybe something that we don't have enough in our longing after the age to come, after um, thinking upon heavenly things as something that is supposed to excite our our longing, a sense of. Um, a sense of desire and yearning after something that is beautiful and good, that is not disconnected from the things that are immediate to us, but draw us beyond those and enable us to rise up to something higher.
1: Can I just say I how much I love it? It's a Christmas miracle that I have offered the uh, skepticism about the Neoplatonic dim- dimensions here. And Alistair has defended them. Like it's, it's, How pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. (laughs) So can we talk a little bit about, since we're at the end of book nine, can we talk just a little bit about biography and um, the Christian life? Because this is probably the first robust spiritual autobiography uh, my introduction to Augustine's Confessions was at a talk that I went to an un- by, as an undergrad by a person who will remain nameless, um, who argued that Augustine is is sort of deeply narcissistic for the way in which he uh, engages in self-scrutiny and tells his um, the story of his conversion. Um, I'm wondering what you guys make of the biographical dimensions and how given that we're now leaving them behind after this chapter, how we should understand the the place of autobiography um, within the Christian life.
0: Well, first of all, we'll pray for your friend. Um,
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: Um, I'm, I'm guessing this person matured in the Lord since then. Um, but I think to some degree, there's the, we have to factor in the fact that there's also some personal apologetic going on. There's a reason that that, that's one of the dimensions to what he is writing um, in terms of his place in the ministry and so forth. Um, I do think the stepladder dimension that you're speaking of uh, is definitely there. Um, I, it's thinking about this now in the wake of, you know, the Half billion personal essays we've all read at this point um, on the internet. <laughs> it It feels different, right? Uh, it, it's It's hard not it's hard not to filter it through the um, authenticity trap and the I don't know the the thirst tweets and the and the and the look at me dimension that some of us, uh, so much of us that we a awash in. Um, So I I don't want to read it through that lens here. This whole thing is a testimony to the Lord's work in the way that Augustine writes it. It is it is a it's an examination of the way the Lord has been at work providentially in his life and I I was actually thinking about this the other day. I think there's something it can be dangerous but it can also be very healthy to reflect in this way. I I was thinking the other day about this uh, There's times in my life where um, the Lord has said no to a prayer, and I was angry. I didn't understand. Five, six years, ten years down the road, then I'm I'm quite grateful. I'm quite grateful. But uh, if I didn't reflect like that, the reflection like that um, helps me live in these times where I where I think He's saying no now. But if I can think back. Well, okay, but we, I've been in places like this before. God has nevertheless been faithful to me in those times where I thought I didn't understand. I didn't understand why he wasn't giving me what I thought I needed. Um, I was a fool, right? He knew I needed something else. And, and so reflecting on what the Lord was doing in my life 10 years ago, five years ago, um, helps me helped me live now. And so I think there are, I think there is a healthy place for reflection on the Lord's works in in our own personal narratives, uh, even if that can go to seed uh, with certain cultural pressures. I mean the the, the other thing that I, the other thing I will say is um, Augustine. We, we've got the first notes now. I don't know if they're there in the Greek, but um, the narrative is also thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly saturated with Scripture. He's reinterpreted his life through scripture and um that gives the ballast and the backbone to to the whole thing and so that's the other dimension that i think often we, we don't see in the terms of personal narrative is that there's lack of attention to scriptural narrative and 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 and, and the scriptural narrative exercising a determining function as to how we read our own lives. so those, those are my couple of thoughts Alistair.
2: There are a number of factors that need to be taken into account. And perhaps comf- comparing um, Confessions to one of the myriad of works that has emerged from the millennial evangelical first-person narrative industrial complex will show that maybe it's not so narcissistic after all. But I think, for one, he's writing this at a distance of over a decade from the end of those the events that he records he's looking back on his experience and trying to make sense of it in a way that he's not still caught in the immediacy of the experience and of this of this journey he's moved beyond it and he's looking he's looking back to try and understand these things it's a deeply theological account because for Augustinian theology I mean it's understandable that he should become a question to himself theologically Anthropology and the question of the sinful nature, all these sorts of questions are very live ones. And so, this existential emphasis is fairly appropriate to the theology that he's trying to develop and explore. And expressing it within an artificial, in this um, autobiographical framework, is not an artificial um, approach to it. It's a very apt avenue into thinking about. Augustinian themes. I mean, how do I understand my own experience? How do I read that? And so often we have these frameworks for interpreting our spiritual experience that are given to us by the particular um, tradition that we're within, and giving people a paradigm worked out within the account of his own life to think about their spiritual experience and God's work within their lives, what it means to be converted what it means to desire things properly, what it means to struggle with the sinful nature, how God can be active within his providential dealings in your life in your through answers to prayer and these sorts of things. These are very important questions that help us to live in an Augustinian manner and to think about ourselves and to understand ourselves in this way. So it's a deeply theological account. Also, it's one that's not primarily about... Um, just his own individual headspace it ends with the death of his mother and that's significant i don't think that's an accident that ends at that point um it's framed the narrative is very much framed at many different points by her prayers by um her longing for her for his conversion and so her death is a very natural point to end now, if it was just about his personal experience, he'd be bringing it up to date, to the present. But it's something more than that, and the themes that he's exploring, and as he will move forward beyond a purely autobiographical approach, I think that's illuminating too, that that's, autobiography is serving a broader theological purpose, which will be more fully disclosed in the chapters that follow.
0: You know, there's more that we could do here, but that's a, that's a good word to end on uh, for, for this time. Um, once again, we will be returning uh, next week, probably with a different subject, and coming, coming back to Confessions again soon. So uh, we hope you've been enjoying these discussions. Uh, but for now, thanks for listening.